Businesses oftentimes have this feeling of FOMO, fear of missing out, right? They want to they want to run the latest thing. They want to run the latest tech. They want to have the latest processes. They want to be in the latest fancy channels. Those are the types of things I'm facing, which is, you know, I try to tell my clients have one foot in the present, but also one foot in the future. And it's that one foot in the present piece that sometimes is missing. Jason Greenwood, it is good to have you here on Ecomotics. How are you doing? What's new with you? Oh, mate, it's fantastic to be here. I thank you for for having me on. Look, it's it's been a it's been a crazy time. We're we're back in in red, uh, as they call it here in New Zealand, which means we're we're uh, we're pretty clamped down on things. But you know, such is the story of COVID that you we go through these waves, and and New Zealand and Australia seem to be. Uh, taking a, a much more hardline approach than many other places in the world. So I'm lucky in that I, I live in an off-grid tiny house. And so uh, I work remote with all of my clients anyway. So it's not, it doesn't affect me as much as it does other people that are trying to get into offices and various mm-hmm. other things. But, uh, but yeah, we're, we're in the middle of summer here and the weather's beautiful and we're just trying to enjoy it as much as best we can. I have to wonder about being off-grid uh, and this is going to be a pretty bougie question, but you know, such as it is, the, you know, internet access and all of that. Because when I hear off grid, I think like you know, chopping down trees to to make fires and and, and hunting and, and foraging for. So, what is the what is the the actual like lifestyle of, of off grid, and how are you still able to main, stay connected? I mean, I'm over here in Toronto, Canada, and your connection is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's not too bad. It's it's a hundred percent wireless connection through through Vodafone. Um, we we have a we have a rural wireless uh, broadband company here called Farmside, but they use the the Vodafone five um, G four G and five G network, and they have a they have a wireless uh, rural broadband connection. So basically, one hundred percent. As long as I've got power, then I can connect to the internet, and then obviously I can also tether with my cell phone. If 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 that goes down, then I've always got a backup with tethering with my with my cell phone, which is four uh, G out here. Although the 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 standard four G connectivity out here is pretty pathetic so yeah it, there's there's alternatives and it keeps us going but yeah living off grid is always exciting we're on full solar but we've got a you know, i've got a 4 kva generator as a backup and yeah we we run off lithium lithium batteries and yeah we're pretty pretty well set up i'm wondering if this will end up being a uh, you know a thread throughout the remainder of the episode no promises i'm not saying it, it will or won't but having looked into what you're up to and a lot of your future facing uh, discussion that you have with other people it is interesting to me to see this not delicate but intricate balance of you know both getting an abundance of nature and and breathing in the fresh air while at the same time really making use of tech at its uh, at its best and that and at the forefront of it. So seeing that balance is something that uh, I, f- I find admirable. So we'll, we'll we'll see how well we can integrate it to the remainder of the discussion. I, yes, I'm well, my dog my dog little. definitely has an opinion on that, and he forces me. He's a uh, he's only about three years old, and he's a uh, he's a mixed breed, but he's basically. He's basically a, a Jack Russell mixed with a beagle, and so he's uh, he he definitely is very very energetic, and so at least twice a day he'll force me to get out and go for a walk on our on the property here. It's about 15 acres, uh, semi rural, and so he forces me to get out and go for a walk twice a day. So you know, I, I whilst I spend a lot of time online, I also am, am very grounded, and I try to I try to make sure that I get out and actually breathe fresh air as often as I can and get sunshine on my face. The, the therapeutic qualities of it were, were lost in me for a long time. And I can tell, like, if I don't leave my apartment for, for a few days at a time, the lethargy starts to set in, the ennui starts to set in. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So here we go uh, for our opening question that is you know more on subject. Um, although I will say I, I love the whole what's new thing. I am keeping that. So anyways, tell us, what do you do? What are you up to these days? Oh man, I've got I've got a lot on my plate, but it's it's an exciting time to be in digital, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, COVID put a rocket under digital, unlike anything I've ever seen before. I've been in this industry for over twenty years, and and I've just never seen anything like it. The demand went through the roof for digital, and you know, and it 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 transformed the way we interact as humans. It transformed retail. It's you know, it's got long tail effects. But for me, you know, my my I started my consulting business, my independent consulting business smack in the middle of COVID. So I've been running that just over a year now. And, it, you know, it's been a fantastic run. Uh, I don't deal primarily with sort of vanilla retailers. I deal with really, really complex commerce environments, B2B, D2C environments, uh, you know, really complex omni-channel environments, hybrid models, cross-border commerce, you know, omni-channel integration, full stack commerce. So I don't, I don't just work on the e-commerce side. I work across the whole Entire commerce stack, you know, ERP, CRM, PIM, C- CDP, warehouse management, order management, the whole the whole stack really. And so I, I found that that B two B primarily 
especially during COVID, B2B historically has not necessarily had a big emphasis on e-com. And during COVID, they had to. They had no choice because a lot of their field sales reps and their account managers, et cetera, they couldn't, they couldn't go and see their, their customers. And so, and so they had no choice but to adopt digital ways of working, and they had no choice but to adopt digital commerce. And, and then, they, then they started to realize, geez, this is actually pretty bloody hard because we've got mm-hmm. price lists, we've got customer groups, we've got you know, a, a quote process that has to be digitalized. We've got all these manual sort of organic processes that have grown over, say, 10, 20, 30 years of, of running a B2B business. And now we have to try to digitalize all these processes while at the same time not alienating our sales teams and our account management teams who feel threatened by e-commerce in many instances. So how do we walk that fine line with digital enablement without threatening sales teams and who are the, you know, the lifeblood of a lot of B2B businesses? They rely on B2B sales uh, teams to be able to close deals and be able to have that working relationship with the, with the customer. So it has been a massive transformation during this time, no doubt about it. And then obviously in 2021, uh, the latest buzz is Web3. And what does that look like? And people asking me about that on a regular basis and me trying to wind their expectations back and say, look, this is still very early days of Web3. You need to get your foundations right. Don't snap at the latest shiny thing. We need to get the basis, the, the absolute fundamental foundations of your business nailed your operational core. We need to get that really efficient. We need to get that digitally enabled. Uh, and we get we need to get that super efficient so that when you onboard these new channels, whether that be a marketplace channel, whether that be a social channel, whether that be a metaverse channel, it doesn't really matter what the channel is. You have to be able to onboard new channels as they emerge quickly, easily, and efficiently. Uh, and if you can't do that, then that signals a wider problem in your business that we probably need to address first. Uh, and that's sort of the things that I've seen is that is that businesses oftentimes have this this feeling of FOMO, fear of missing out, right? They want to they want to run the latest thing. They want to run the latest tech. They want to have the latest processes. They want to be in the latest fancy channels that you know. And in many cases, they don't even have an owned channel right yet with a great experience. And so those are the types of things I'm facing, which is you know I try to tell my clients have one foot in the present, but also one foot in the future. And it's that one foot in the present piece that sometimes is missing. When you say when you say owned channel, to be honest, I haven't heard that term yet. And I think what that means is a whether that is a social media platform or um, a marketplace platform, whatever it is, it is something that they have a strong foothold in, and it's something that they're able to build out of. Is that is that close enough? No, I, I would consider those leased or rented channels, or or in the case okay. of marketing, a a earned channel. So when I say owned, I'm talking about an own website. Uh, so their own commerce channels that they own outright, manage, maintain, have control over. And then obviously an owned marketing channel might be an own podcast. Uh, you know, some of the other marketing channels, their, their own blog, their own channels that they can go direct to market through, whether that be from a marketing perspective or a transactional perspective. Mm-hmm. And then they have kind of these, these rented or leased channels, which are the other transactional channels like marketplaces and social and other marketing channels that they that they effectively are, are pay to play in those environments. Right, right, yeah. So, so more like a, a, sh- a shared channel environment. I guess the reason why I thought owned was more like a company or a brand has enough dominance in that channel that they are not only uh, at the top of their game, but are actually having influence on other people. So then you get into this whole uh, uh, ecosystem of like which brands are um, set at the pace on these different platforms. But I, I understand what you're saying now where versus you know like this podcast over here created by the company. You know, yeah. made for the company. It's something that we have, you know, full control over. Uh, okay, so you brought up Web three, and my expectations for Web three right now are like they don't exist, just because I don't, I haven't really been able to wrap my head around it so far. What I've come to understand, uh, at least as a part of Web three, uh, we're talking about NFT, NFT, cryptocurrency, and you mentioned the metaverse. Now, does the metaverse qualify for Web three, or is the metaverse like its own lateral thing being built up because it's using the web as a resource, but it's really turning into its own, I guess, world, frankly. Yeah, typically the metaverse is falls under that Web3 umbrella because it's it's enabled by certain digital technology that is only really starting to mature now. Obviously, VR, AR, XR, so mixed reality, those have been around for you know about a decade now in one form or another. But really, they're only starting to hit the mainstream dialogue outside of gaming and outside of 
commercial and military use. They're really only starting to, to move into the mainstream culture now. And NFTs have had a lot to do with that. Easy access to cryptocurrency has, you know, with the likes of Coinbase and Binance and the ease of, of getting into cryptocurrency now. And I think many of the major digital commerce influencers, such as Gary Vee and some of the other major players, even Tom Bilyeu and some of the other major players, going hammer and tongs at pushing not only the NFTs, but smart contracts and the influences that all of this emerging and maturing technology will have on commerce and on relationships and on community. I think, I think because there's some big, big names behind this and you know, hundreds of billions worth of VC dollars flowing into this space, it's gone from vaporware to on the horizon. Like, you know, even a year ago, it was mostly just complete vaporware. But when you have, you know, Microsoft announcing in the last week that they're going to spend $69 billion to acquire Activision Blizzard, when you have Walmart in the last week announcing they're going to go all in on the metaverse and they're going to create their own cryptocurrency, when you have Google saying that they're going to go all in on the metaverse, they see the future there, they're creating a metaverse team within their business uh, to go along with their other VR teams, which have been around since the Google Glasshole days. Uh, you know, and, and so I think there's a lot of technology that is, is becoming more mainstream because it's more accessible. And I recently had Mike Angel on my podcast. The podcast episode has yet to come out yet, but he's one of the co-founders of Fractal, which is a gaming NFT marketplace. So when we look at those marketplaces emerging along with OpenSea, and along with the new blockchains that are coming out that support really, really complex smart contracts, the, te the technology is maturing very, very fast. And whenever you have major investors, major retailers, and basically all of the tech community focused on Web3 and underlying technologies, it, it, it may not be on the horizon tomorrow, but if people don't start learning about it today, they'll find their business being left behind. And I work with clients every day that lament or regret the fact that they didn't get into e-commerce sooner. They regret they didn't get into mobile sooner. They regret they didn't get into, you know, that they didn't get into social sooner or marketplaces sooner. And so, and so am I am I saying that, for example, with my clients, am I telling them, hey, we need to look at this metaverse thing today? No, I'm not, but I'm saying, hey, look, you need to make sure that you keep your your finger on the pulse of what's happening in this space because it will become mainstream probably sometime in the next five to 10 years. And you need to be setting the foundation right now so that when that does hit the mainstream, you're ready to rock. You know, this is a question that I was uh, chambering more towards the end, uh, just because it's a little bit more fun, but I, I can't resist the urge to ask you uh, right away. But when you're paying, when you're keeping your eye on um, this emerging technology and when we talk about the metaverse, it can not only is it world changing, it's world creating. Yes. Uh, does any of this frighten you like in a, in a dystopian sense or in a, a ready player one sense where you know people are going to start being drawn away from actual reality and just live their life in there? I'm asking it for fun, but I, I really am curious to, to know what, what's been your take on that from that point of view. Look, I, th I think that's an absolute risk. And I think there are dark sides to this that you know we could go down a long rabbit hole of, of matrix-like outcomes, right? <laughs> And, and I mean, effectively, if you want to see what the metaverse is all about, just go and rewatch The Matrix and you'll start to understand that is, for all intents and purposes, that is what the metaverse will be. It will be, it will rapidly become virtual environments that are so lifelike and so realistic that you will not be able to distinguish them between the physical real world or base reality and virtual reality. But obviously, in virtual reality, there are other capabilities and functions and experiences we can have in those worlds that there is no uh, analog for in the in the physical world there is no equivalent so we'll be able to have experiences in the virtual world that, that, that there is no physical current human equivalent for and so that's going to be you know you can almost think like the holodeck you know you can think of it through many different lenses and many dystopian lenses but i think that the technology is coming whether we like it or not and from my, from my perspective what I want to do is I want to have a positive dialogue and a positive contribution to where this goes mm -hmm. and encourage people to try to be able to find a better balance in their life. Now, obviously, social media has shown us that we're really bad at balance and many other things in the digital space have shown us we're really bad at balance. And I'm hoping that the metaverse doesn't turn out to be an equally unbalanced type of environment that kids go, kids disappear into 
because, for example, they're getting bullied at school and they actually don't even want to go to school anymore. So they're going to go to school in the metaverse where they can control the environment. They'll never get bullied. They'll never get talked down to. They'll never get shamed. They can create any kind of avatar, any look that they want. They, they can they can behave and look, you know, almost like a superhero if they want to in that environment. And and is that going to be attractive for many people to disappear down that rabbit hole of the metaverse and never come out? Absolutely. There's no question about that. But I I don't see it as too different to people that spend 15 hours or 20 hours a day in social media. It's 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 not that much different. It's an evolution of that, but it's not that much different. And so I think the the same struggle for balance we already have is going to be the same struggle for balance that's carried over into the metaverse. Well, I, I'd like to c- contribute to this idea because I'm not trying to turn this into a therapy session, but I had a pretty hard time in school. And in doing so, turned to video games, turned to online communities as a way to feel like I belong somewhere and to be part of a more positive environment. And I mean, into this day, I still I still game as a hobby, although, you know, I'm treated very nicely at work. So, you know, I'm just not, yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not, yeah. It, that, that part at least is like, you know, um, uh, diminished uh, uh, somewhat. The ability to um, disconnect from, you know, on, from being on the online world, from some of the most uh, uh, highly addictive video games is within our, our, our ability of control because there's only so much encoding that happens. Like, yeah, we're playing World of Warcraft and we're playing it quite a while and it's designed to keep people uh, sticking around and playing and, and, and grinding and, and all of that. But at least it's still taking place on a computer where, you know, all you have to do is like turn around and you're just taken out of the environment like that. Whereas putting on a virtual reality helmet or even going so far as being in a room where they are spraying different, you know, um, uh, senses at you, like they start squirting water at you, which they've done in theaters, by the way, the amount of encoding that will take place when people are having these like near one-to-one experiences is I think much more, much more prevalent or much more powerful, much more potent. The risk can be that it will be 10 times as hard to pull people out of that addiction um, than it has been already. And it already has been rather difficult for a lot of people to to, just basically snap out of it. And then on the other side, you look at, well, you know, what is, what is so bad about society that keeps people from wanting to participate in it? And the reality is, yeah, for me, I know this is getting a little uh, political here, but you know, I, I think it's worth bringing up once in a while. Is you know, on the one hand, you do have uh, people give you a hard time, you do have bullies, but then you have what it's what's even worse is trying to stand up to them and trying yes. to fight back. Maybe maybe you gain the respect one out of ten times. Maybe the teachers will suspend you and or expel you based on how you retaliate. Maybe the bullies start calling their friends, and the situation gets worse. So we still have to look into you know what is making reality so problematic for so many people and use people's you know eagerness and time spent on these other platforms as a metric to decide you know why are people spending half their life on these on these games or in these environments and and not in this in this other world that we've worked pretty hard to create so far yeah i, I couldn't agree with you more i mean i think that you know people around the world are losing faith in government they're losing faith in in community they're losing faith in in many things in their life they're losing faith in religion they're losing faith in in lots of things but you know, I'm 47 years old, and and what I've learned is that the human connection, the heart, love, emotion, these things, they are the stuff that make us human. And those things are super, super hard to get in a virtual environment, even across Zoom, right? We have, even with a call like this, where you can kind of see my hands, you can't see all of my body language. You can't, you can't, you can't, I mean, we're energetic beings. We know this, you know, I know it sounds woo woo and I'm not a tree hugger by any stretch, but modern science has proven that we are biomechanical beings and that, and that we're, we, we have an electrical pulse that pulses through our body that's generated by our heart. And, and so much of our sensory perception is based on these energetic outputs of the human body. And even to the point where we know that, for example, when we, when we hug our friend or we hug our loved one, there's an instant shot of oxytocin that you don't get. Even if I'm talking to the same person via Zoom, I don't get the oxytocin shot, which is actually a moderator for dopamine. So mm-hmm. oxytocin automatically cancels out dopamine. And so, so the gaming engines and, and these virtual reality worlds, they play very heavily on our dopamine system but they cannot replace oxytocin. And so that that comes from human connection and human touch and human interaction being in the same physical space. And so, uh, you know, there is, at the moment, there is no replacement for that. Now, will VR bodysuits with olfactory sense and haptic capabilities and ultimately where Elon wants to take us with human, you know, uh, machine brain interfaces and computer brain interfaces 
ECI's brain uh, computer interfaces, will those where we have direct brain stimulation to where our brain won't literally be able to tell the difference between physical and virtual because it's triggering the same neurons that it would if we were physically in person, will we be able to all of a sudden now be able to trigger an oxytocin release by hugging someone 10,000 miles away because we feel like we're actually hugging them? I don't think I have the answers to that and I don't think anybody does yet, but for the time being, people need to understand the biology of their body and of the immune system. They need to understand these things better without before they rush headlong into the digital. I think they need to understand what the feedback loop they're creating for themselves and their physical body. If they understand, and I come from a, a very strong natural health background. I ran e-commerce, uh, you know, for New Zealand's largest online retailer of natural health products. I've been in, into natural health since I was a kid. So, and, and so were my parents. And so I guess from a supplementation perspective, from a, from an exercise perspective, from a, a breath perspective, there's lots of things that are important to me because they've always been important to me and they've always been taught to me as being important to me. Mm-hmm. What I'm more concerned about is people that don't understand how their body works. They don't understand the endocrine system. They don't understand how every single hormone that they have in their body is being hijacked by digital technology because that the digital technology is trying to achieve an outcome and it understands our biology better than we do in many cases and it can achieve that outcome because they've tested to achieve that outcome. And so all I would encourage people to do is to start understanding the biology of the human body better before rushing headlong into technology with reckless abandon. That's all I would recommend. Well, I think that's fantastic. And I, and I, and I knew, well, okay, I didn't know, but I predicted that what we talked about right at the beginning, the balance between tech and, and, and living in nature would, would come up again. And your, your, your background, you know, working in, in, in natural health space and all of that. It, I, I can see where you're coming from with that. And then I, I, in, in my mind, I just imagined what would happen if somebody would enter the VR space and almost have like a magic school bus experience where they are shrunk down to like the, the molecular level and actually can probably can possibly learn what you're discussing in a much more intuitive way because they're seeing for themselves what, you know, what our cells are up to, what our atoms are up to and, and the work that our bodies are, are, are going through on a day-to-day basis. It's really fascinating stuff. So this is another thing that I chambered earlier. So you had mentioned, um, uh, well, you did mention the metaverse. We talked about it. We've been talking about it. But I noticed something has happened a couple of times in, especially in, in the digital space, in, in the gaming space. Um, Valve, the creators of Half-Life, uh, Counter-Strike, they released a they released a gaming platform known as Steam. And for quite a while, Steam was pretty much the only one in the marketplace. And they had a game that was so in demand that players were forced to adopt Steam in order to play the game. It was Half-Life 2. Everybody wanted to play it. It was like the holy grail of of gaming at the time. And it still holds up. And over time, publishers were putting their games on these platforms and they said, you know what, never mind. I think we would rather make our own. And now we have like 50 different gaming clients from from the different companies. Same thing happened with Netflix. Uh, Disney, for instance, a lot of these uh, major companies were, they were just jam-packing Netflix with so much content. You would be crazy not to have it. Like it was, there was just so much value in there. And then the same thing happened. Everybody saw, saw dollar signs in their eyes and said, yeah, you know what? I think we'll just we'll do our own thing. So now we have Disney Plus, you have uh, Netflix, uh, Hulu, and all these other ones. I sh- and as a consumer, you know, from, from, from television, it's not so bad because I could just subscribe for one month, exit, subscribe for another month, exit. It's not so bad. It's manageable. I'm wondering if we're if anything like this is going to happen when we get to the metaverse, where instead of maybe at first we'll start with one shared experience where everybody will have their own their own space, but then over time companies are going to say, you know what, I think we at Google we want to create our own version of it, or we at Apple want to create our own version of it. Uh, this pattern does come up. I personally don't think it's a good pattern. I, I think uh, you know more people stand to benefit from having more centralized uh, content releases or content release platforms. However, I just uh, want to know, has any of this crossed your mind or, or are we looking more, what's more likely? Are we looking at one singular metaverse that everyone is going to share or are we looking at, you know, multiple metaverses? I liken it to tabs in a browser. So as of today, we have, we have browser tabs and we have, you know, I can go to an owned e-commerce website of a brand that I like and I can shop directly with them. I can log into Facebook and I can sometimes see their representation. Maybe they've got a Facebook shop or they've got an Instagram shop. And I can log into Instagram on my phone and I can access their shop within Instagram. 
I can maybe go to Amazon or Trade Me or eBay and I can see their Amazon store on, on Amazon, but they also have their own website. Um, so I think the metaverse will be very similar. I think, I think we'll get to a place where we walk, where we virtually step into this open palleted space where uh, we've got this, these tabs of metaverse eye uh, all down the right-hand side of the screen, for lack of a better term, and we just grab one. And all of a sudden now, boom, we're, or, we just, or we just tap that, and all of a sudden we're whisked into that particular metaverse, right? Whereas, whereas we will be able to create our own metaverses ourselves, uh, in these, just like we can create our own websites today on Squarespace, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and as businesses, many businesses, at least at first, will probably be challenged to create their own metaverse. And so therefore, today they can create their own website with relative ease, but it will be challenging for them to create their own metaverse at first because there's there's not a lot of standardization. So there's no equivalent of HTML5, uh, JavaScript, and all the web standards of today. All of those standards don't yet exist in the metaverse. They're being developed, but they don't yet exist. And as a result of that, only the biggest uh, most powerful brands like the Nikes and Adidas of the world and the Walmarts of the world have the capability to create an owned metaverse today with maybe even their own cryptocurrency for loyalty and proof of ownership and all that sort of stuff. That's very expensive today because the technology is so new. But give it five to 10 years, that won't be the case. And you'll have templated metaverses that you can adopt with underlying operating systems that run that. There'll be standardization that will emerge just like there has all the way from the old VHS and beta days and then, uh, you know, video discs. And then we move to, to CDs and DVDs. And then we move to, you know, streaming over the, over the air streaming. So there will be standards that will emerge and no doubt Facebook and you know, and Google and Apple, they will be trying hard to create metaverses of their own that all the major brands want to be represented in digitally. And they'll have digital assets that can be bought and sold in that place. And also physical goods that can be bought and sold via that metaverse. I don't see it as much different as a brand today saying, okay, what are the channel, what is the channel mix that I want to be in? I want to have my own website. I want to sell on Amazon. I want to sell via social. I want to sell through these different digital channels. I see the metaverse evolving in a, in a very similar way. I see some brands will develop their own website or their own metaverse. And then sometimes, you know, we have a lot of brands today that are what's called Amazon native brands. So they started on Amazon and Amazon is the only channel that they sell on. There will be some brands in the future that start out and grow up in, say, for example, the Facebook metaverse, and, and they don't go anywhere else. That, that is their own channel. And that is the only channel that they transact in. That is the only channel that they build an audience in. That is the only channel that they build a community in. And that's fine. Facebook is going to create an environment where that is entirely possible. And I suspect that so will Amazon. I suspect so will Google. I suspect so will Apple. I suspect that all these major tech players will create metaverses that brands want to be present in, whether that be exclusively or as part of their overall channel mix. And I think as, as users of these various different metaverses, we will be able to pick and choose which ones we go into. Now, there's going to be a level of interoperability that comes along with this, i.e. NFT avatars, for example. And there will become a standard that emerges there that I can take my avatar that I own and I can bring that into whatever metaverse environment that I'm in. And, and so that's how I see it. I see it as browser tabs with different experiences in those browser tabs. Some are owned, some are rented, some are earned. Uh, and I see that exact same plethora of environments emerging in the metaverse world. One of the things that um, I, I also want to get your, your take on, too, is one of the main criticisms that I see of uh, a cryptocurrency and of NFTs. And I should say I am excited and you know, enthusiastic about both of these. I, I own some cryptocurrency uh, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm working on some, some NFT stuff. Uh, I, I have my own like personal philosophy on it, at least you know, for the time being, which is I like that these things are passive. So for instance, when I do a little bit of audio editing on my own, and whenever I see an audio signature that I think is interesting, I I, I, I could take that and turn that into an NFT and just, you know, put it on open sea, see what happens. I'm not like, I'm just doing it anyways, right? An extra five seconds worth of effort. You never know where it's going to go. And then with cryptocurrency, I'm using Brave. Brave generates BATs. So, you know, uh, once a year, everything heads into uphold and then I just convert it into Bitcoin and hold on to it. So it, yeah. I don't have to go out of my way for anything. So that's just so you know, I, I, I'm really, really enthusiastic about this stuff. But again, one of those main criticisms that I've seen is actually the environmental impact on this. Now, somebody who you know has quite, I would say like a higher degree of you know, environmental uh, experience than like the average person that I talk to, is, is, this, is this valid, the, the, the impact of it? Is it a burden now, but it will pay off later as they're able to 
replace or become alternatives to what currently may be more um, environmentally or resource intensive methods of payment? Yeah, look, I think that that's why cryptocurrencies and blockchains like Solana, like Polkadot, that, that's why we have these new layer one blockchains that are you know, very, very, very efficient. And if you look at Solana, where the gas fees are like a cent per smart contract or a cent per uh, NFT, because the, the, the because they don't use proof of work as the consensus mechanism, they don't use the they don't use proof of work like Bitcoin to create or mine the coins or the tokens. And as a result of that, they have different consensus mechanisms. They have different minting mechanisms. They have different mining mechanisms that are so vastly more efficient than what we've seen, even with Ethereum one. Now, Ethereum two is supposed to move away from from its super ultra high gas fees, and it's 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 going to move to a much more Solana like, uh, you know, proof of history uh, consensus environment. And as a result of that, I see. You know, everybody in the industry knows that it is not sustainable. If if only Bitcoin existed still to this day, and of course, Bitcoin doesn't even support smart contracts. It doesn't support NFTs. It's a legacy crypto. You can think of it as e-gold more than an e-silver. I think of the other layer one layer one cryptos as more e-silver, i.e. they have a very utilitarian purpose behind them and they have a very utilitarian use behind them and that's what gives the network value as opposed to pure proof of work and so i i I see a future evolving very very rapidly where the old school layer one blockchains of the past are simply no longer accepted and used by the community Mm -hmm. applications are no longer built out on them uh and we just lose them by attrition or they adapt either they adapt and so for example you know, Bitcoin could change away from a proof of work mining model to something else that wasn't as 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 energy intensive. Will they do that? Probably not, because they the, the the you know Bitcoin is not known as being very progressive. But a lot of the other layer one blockchains are very progressive, and I see a world emerging within the next say five years where gas fees drop to basically zero because the 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 energy required to mine those tokens is basically zero and to mint an NFT is basically zero, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I I really see this as a a major issue that most of the players in the space grasp very intuitively, and they don't want the old school ways to carry on into the future. They just don't, they don't want that because, because remember the high cost is also a barrier to adoption. So even if they're not in favor of protecting the environment or reduce, reducing environmental impact, they are in favor of reducing the cost and the complexity because that will dramatically increase adoption, therefore increase the size of the total addressable market. One point that I want to bring up, um, because of the way you um, related Bitcoin to gold, uh, I, I'm not like, you know, actually, I am kind of team gold. Like I, I've always uh, appreciated it. And the main reason why I appreciate it is it does have um, utility, right? It is used in, in computers. It is used as a superconductor. They paint it on the sides of spaceships. So I think that is one of the reasons why gold has continued to be of value. And it's yes. and it, it's curious to, because it has that about two sides to it. It has the aesthetic side to it because um, gold also doesn't rust. Um, yes. But then it also has immense and future-facing uh, potential for it. So the, the, to support your argument, I think the way I see Bitcoin is it's more of an antique at this point. It's, it's like finding like an original Model T or finding yeah. like one of the very first muskets that ever came out. Um, credit to Tara Warwick for coming up with that one. And so owning it is, you know, owning a piece of history and, and, and a piece of the legacy of it. And then the, 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 the remaining um, all these other ones that are in the market right now are looking to, I guess, molt, right? Shed their skin, uh, transform, become a, a better version of it. So for, for people who are holding on to all, all these different coins is, I know this is like a few a few rungs up, um, uh, off track, but you know, I encourage that kind of thing anyways. Is it possible that people can be holding on to um, various crypto coins that are just not going to have any value or will they... Um, enter antiquity, or do they need to be converted into something else? Uh, how do you keep track of like which coins are worth holding on to? For me, like I'm, I'm still relatively new to this, as I think a lot of people are. And yeah, yeah look, yeah, we're trying definitely. to change the wheels on the car while it's going down the motorway at 100 kilometers an hour. So I don't think anyone, anyone that tells you they can predict exactly what's going to happen in the future, I think is is either lying or delusional. But I think that there are very, very clear emerging blockchain blockchains with underlying tokens that have 
both current and roadmapped utility associated with them that give the underlying crypto its value. So I, I'm not looking at them as a pure store of value. What gives them value is the network capability of those blockchains. And if we look at Solana and we look at, at its throughput capability in terms of transactions per minute, if we look at its native capability around smart contracts and what it can do in that area, and, and the types of applications, the types of Web3 and DeFi applications or dApps that can be built out on Solana today, and what they have on their roadmap is insane. And when we look at that utility, because all of the apps, for example, that are built on the Solana blockchain will use, for transactional purposes, will use the sole cryptocurrency as the underlying currency for all transactions on the blockchain, that's what gives that particular cryptocurrency its value. It's not like a Bitcoin where it's the scarcity aspect of it that necessarily gives it its value or the difficulty of mining it that gives it its value. Mm -hmm. In the case of Solana and some of the other blockchains, it's their sheer utility in the Web3 world that gives them their value. And because they are constraining the amount of coins that can be in circulation at any given point in time, that's what controls the inflation rate of the value of those underlying tokens. And so for me, I'm always trying to look at what is the utility of those blockchains. And so I guess because I've been in the tech space for a long time, I grasp those utilities pretty quickly when I start to read their tech specs, what they can do, when I start reading some of the commentary from people that are much smarter than me around crypto algorithms and describing what those algorithms are capable of in layman's terms, I can pick those up really quickly and I can go, there's probably only maybe three, maybe four layer one modern what I would call Gen 3 layer one blockchains that I think have such utility value that I can almost guarantee they will continue to grow in popularity and they will continue to grow in use. And they have different levels of utility. I mean, if we compare Polkadot, for example, with Solana, Polkadot and its ability to create parachains, which is chain on chain technology, Solana doesn't have that. And so when we look at Polkadot, it doesn't maybe have the transaction per minute capability of a Solana. It maybe doesn't have the flexibility of its smart contracts that perhaps a Solana does. There's some other things that, that Solana does better than Polkadot, but then there's things that Polkadot does far better, or, or there's functionality that it has that literally no other blockchain has today. Uh, and others may copy them, but for as of today, there's certain things it can do that no one else can. And so when I look at the utility or the technical capabilities of these specific blockchains, and what that contributes to their token value, that to me is the most interesting part. Holding cryptocurrency for the sake of holding cryptocurrency doesn't really interest me, mm -hmm. but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bullish on Solana. I'm bullish on Polkadot. I'm bullish on these cryptocurrencies because of what the blockchain sitting on top of them can do. I know I'm not the first person to say this to you, but uh, I'm definitely going to have to go back and like listen to this again, you know, re reabsorb this information. Credit to you, you, re you really do know your stuff. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed, uh, to say the least. I'm going to shift gears because there's something else that I wanted to make sure that we talked about before we run out of time, um, which is, you know, you do have a hand in, in the retail space. So we don't get to talk to too many people in the retail space. In fact, I remember the last, no, actually, I had to talk to two people uh, in the retail space, although one of them preferred not to call it retail, he preferred to call it showrooms. So suffice it to say, we don't get to talk about it too often. I'll start with, uh, with the, you know, the 30,000 foot overview of it, but what role are you playing right now in the retail space with the clients that you're working with, um, helping them? Um, are you, you mentioned earlier, a lot of the clients that you're working with, um, they're maybe reluctant, uh, to, maybe too reluctant to uh, adopt some of this um, uh, digital technology. So I'm also wondering if there's like an uh, opposite of this where people who are like heavily in the digital space, they have an advantage waiting for them in the physical space that they're not taking. I'm wondering if that's come up. Yeah, look, there's, there's both of those scenarios playing out. And because I focus on really complex um, commerce environments, I don't deal with too many vanilla retailers that, for example, are just selling the same stuff as 20 other retailers. Most of the time, I'm dealing with very strong brands that either are manufacturing products or they are a wholesaler distributor of those products in a given region. And so therefore, they have some element of curation capability of the products that they sell, and they have some element of pricing power uh, over those products in the market as opposed to just a sheer race to the bottom. So for those brands, what, what they're trying to figure out in most cases is 
where is the biggest growth opportunity for my brand? Is it, is, do I go and spend a whole bunch more money on physical stores? Because, you know, as we start to come out of lockdowns, we're seeing a lot of physical stores starting to do very, very well again, as people are going, man, I'm so sick of being locked down. I want to get out there and I want to go to the mall. I want to go to my physical stores. I want to go and sit on physical furniture before I buy it again, instead of just seeing it as an AR overlay in my house. You know, so we're seeing physical retail rebound very strongly as places come out of lockdown globally. And I think that's been a global phenomenon. But I think that some of the gains that we've achieved, say, for example, you know, a 10% on average increase in uh, e-commerce adoption as a total percentage of retail is becoming the common sort of average around the world. Well, in the case of New Zealand, for example, or Australia, that's 10 years worth of e-commerce penetration that that happened in a year or two. So we we definitely have seen an acceleration. So to to walk back entirely from committing to digital and committing to e-commerce would be suicide I think for brands that that maybe started that transition or started that enhancement during covid I think it would be foolish for them to all of a sudden start to cut investment in those areas because they will only continue to grow maybe not at the same rate that they did during covid because people had no choice they had to shop from home but but I think that you know the brands they're trying to figure out what is the ideal channel mix for us because we can't invest in everything we can't go and Build a you know build fifty extra stores. We can't go and invest a million dollars in our digital channels tomorrow. We can't make all these investments. And, and even if we had the money, we don't have the capability. We don't have the internal resources and capability to focus on all these things because then we'll do none of them really well. And so we want to we want to focus and we want to do some things exceptionally well. And so that's where a lot of these brands are starting to bring in consultants such as myself, or they're starting to work more closely with their agency, their development agency, for example. They're starting to lean on those external resources for perhaps short sprints, short projects, short programs of work, uh, where I come in and like my average engagement with my clients is say perhaps six months. Uh, And I help them go through a pretty significant period of digital transformation over that six months. And then I kind of hand it back to them and they run with it. Or they maybe retain me for a period after that to kind of handhold, ask questions of, keep them on the straight and narrow, bounce ideas off of, et cetera, and, and help kind of hold their hand in the medium to long term. But, but I help them with organizational change so that I can help them identify the capability gaps within the business so that they can slowly start to fill those over time so that they have less reliance on me or anyone else. And they can start to build up some of that internal capability through knowledge, effective knowledge transfer of those external experts, bringing that capability internal to them. And and then they can start making these decisions on their own uh, internally based on, because, you know, no matter how much they open their kimono to me, it's not quite the same as being a full-blown employee in the business. People Mm -hmm. that are in the business and focus solely on that business 24-7, they're going to be much more embedded in that business than I will ever be. But sometimes they need help bridging that gap to get from where they are to where they want to be, or even figuring out where they are and where they want to get to. That's sometimes the biggest challenge that they have. And so those brands that I'm working with, I'm helping them figure out what their channel mix is. I'm helping them figure out what their tech stack needs to be. I'm helping them figure out their organizational design, their process design. How can we, how can we take some of these really legacy processes that you've had in your business, how through the use of technology and some of the inerrant, uh, inerrant processes that come along with that technology, how can we improve what you do today and how can we make that lots more efficient? So lots of discussions we're having, but most retailers are just really struggling with what is the the perfect channel mix. And I don't think, I think there's perfect for now, but I don't think that that will always be perfect because we have so many channels that are evolving and emerging every single day that I think the idea for me is how can we build a stack? How can we build an organizational design? How can we build process design in such a way that it makes you infinitely scalable and infinitely flexible because that's what businesses need more than being locked in the current way or moving to a new locked in way of doing things. We need to build flexibility and scalability into the beating heart of the business Mm -hmm. to where this increasing rate of change doesn't break the back of your business. One of the mistakes that I remember you talking about on uh, on someone else's podcast was that a lot of these businesses they they go so far as to develop their own technology from the ground up. Like they come up, they come up, they they bring in programmers, they come up with their own their own software, their own uh, POS, 
it, within the span of like six months, it ends up slowing the, the, the business down because every time they need to update it, they got to bring those people back in. And then it's just, well, you know, I remember, I remember this happens. I, you know, I used to work in, in the retail battlefield and we remember our, our, our <laughs> yes, it stands for um, a point of service, but you know, POS can stand for something else. If you know what I mean, I think this ties into what you described with tech stack. And again, this is one of those terms that doesn't come up very often in our program. So um, how, how do you, how are you explaining to, to brands exactly what the tech stack is and, and what it is that they need to, to, to you, to do, to integrate it properly? Yeah. So we always start with with looking at where they are today, independent of the tech. Where are you today in your business and how you run your business? And where would you like to be? Where are those pain points in your business today that you think, man, we're really not efficient here or or staff morale in this department is really bad because of X, Y, Z, or, or we're not able to attract top talent because of X, Y, Z, or we're not able to meet our sales targets based on talking to our salespeople because of X, Y, Z, or we're hemorrhaging, we have too much churn of our customers because of X, Y, Z. So there's usually some real strong pain points when you get into discovery with them. And I try to leave the tech out of the discussion in those very early phases. And I start to look at two things. I look at, I look at what understanding the business has already internally of where their pain points are and what they think is holding them back. And then I also look at their data. So I say, show me your customer data. I say, show me what that looks like. What is the depth and breadth of the customer data that you have today? And, and do you think you have gaps in that? And what do those gaps look like? And then show me your product data. Again, what does the product data structure look like? Do you have structured and unstructured data around your products? Is it digital ready? Is it digital channel ready? Uh, is it not? You know, what does your pricing model look like, both for B2C and B2B? You know, what do your customer groups look like? How do you service them? What differentiates them? You know, what kind of uh, logistics, uh, how, how does your logistics work and how does that affect pricing? You know, all these different things, we start to look at it independent of the tech because tech is just a tool that can help us fix problems or make us more efficient or make mm -hmm. us more happy and, and enjoy our work more and attract better talent because we're working with better tech perhaps that allows them to do their job better. And so I try to always start independent of the tech and then I start to match up some of the tech that I think can start to plug some of these gaps and, and make them more efficient and happier and enjoy work more and enjoy business more and helping their customers enjoy interfacing with them more from a customer experience perspective. It, it's my job to understand the tech, not theirs. And so then I can open a dialogue about tech with them and say, well, we could we could look at these maybe two or three pieces of technology that would plug these gaps. And if we allow them through integration to share data with each other, this is going to dramatically improve X, Y, Z in the business and, and with the customer experience. And so most of the time, if I start talking tech too early, it goes straight over their head anyway. And so And so it's always about what is the tech in context for their business? And uh, I only work with SaaS platforms, so I don't I don't work with any legacy tech. I don't work with any on-prem or past platforms. I work with all SaaS because the world is now API-driven. It's API-led. It's integration-led. Uh, in many cases, it's moving to, to headless for a lot of brands and microservices-driven. And and you know, on-premise platforms just don't lend themselves well to this new uh, platform as a service or or a software as a service environment. It just doesn't lend itself well to infinite scaling and infinite flexibility, whereas SaaS generally does. So I'm looking at it through the SaaS lens and I'm helping businesses to understand the benefits of SaaSification across their entire business. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes they're on board with that, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they've got some legacy tech that needs to stay in place for complexity or ROI reasons that maybe they just invested in it a year ago and they're not gonna rip it out tomorrow. So we have to work, we, I, I have to meet clients where they are, but also provide them a realistic roadmap map to get where they want to be. Yeah. So that's one of the, one of the things that I was thinking and, and, and you said it out loud when, you know, they've only just got this, this software going and they don't want to just gut it out uh, right away. So it seems that there has to be that sweet spot where if you can say, yes, if you, you know, you integrate this, uh, the SaaS, this will help you grow to this point. But until that, you might end up having to stick with what you have for now, just until then you get into this balance of like, well, what if this is preventing their growth? And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't profess to be able to uh, keep up with you and like what, uh, what entails with this, but it is an interesting uh, balancing act between being able to help them identify their needs and figure out what it is that's holding them back. For me, it's, it's really just how can we look at the future state and try to paint the picture of a future state 
and create the bridge that, you know, there's five, 10 steps that need to get us from the, from the current state to the future state. And it doesn't mean we're all going to, we're going to do them all in the first two months, three months, six months, 12 months. Maybe it's an 18 month roadmap. Maybe it's a 24 month roadmap. Maybe it's a 36 month roadmap. I'm not a big fan. I used to be a big fan early in my career of boiling the ocean or big bang projects that were totally transformative in their own right. But I find that oftentimes if you try to, I'm a big fan of eating the elephant one bite at a time. And so, you know, instead of going in and saying, hey, we're going to replatform ERP, CRM, e-com, and point of sale all in one big bang project, that is very difficult to do. And it's very, very disruptive to a business. I've, I've been part of programs of work like that before, and it is it can turn into a very rapid nightmare. And so trying to roadmap that, sure, there's some pieces that you have to do as a chunk, maybe it's maybe it's ERP and CRM, for example, and you just can't separate those because they're so operationally focused and so financially focused. And mm-hmm. so maybe you do those together, but you don't necessarily go in and do ERP, ecom, PIM, CDP, and pause all at the same time because you just you, you have such a high risk of failure mm-hmm. uh, of getting project fatigue and overrunning budgets and overrunning timelines, and you never get anything live in the end. I'd rather break that down into digestible pieces from a financial perspective and from a transformation perspective. This hour has been flying by. Like, you know, I do periodically just look at the clock just to see how, how we're doing and goodness gracious. The last question that I, that I want to ask you before we start uh, wrapping this up, I want to get back to, uh, to to retail. And so first, just so I know that I'm like visualizing this correctly. So you said that you don't work with uh, vanilla retail. And when I hear that, I'm imagining stuff like Walmart, places that they're just, they're more like wholesalers. So they are collecting the product, then they're selling it. They don't, Walmart, to my knowledge, doesn't manufacture or anything. Whereas, or maybe, or maybe yeah. they have a house brand, but it's, it's, it's 5% of the products. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for all we know, they just import products from somebody else, relabel it anyways. Yes. So, whereas, so and are some of the brands that you may work with, is it possible that, you know, you will be able to see them if you pay a visit to a mall? I just, this is like a qualifying no, question. Uh, no, I don't work with any mall brands currently or any, any, any like retail chains uh, currently. I'm working primarily with B2B businesses. I work with a couple of, of large large retail brands, but they have their own stores uh, independent of the malls. Um, one's a one of the, one's a furniture retail, furniture and homewares retailer, for example, and they've got stores right throughout the whole of New Zealand, uh, you know, physical retail stores as well as online. And, and so, uh, you know, funnily enough, I work with a, I work with a waste company in uh, Ireland, for example. And so they have uh, create, they have basically turned their services into products. They productize their services and they sell them online as services to people who need weight, different types of waste disposed of, you know, I work with a, a fabric, uh, importer and wholesaler. Uh, I, you know, I work with, uh, you know, I, yeah. So I don't work with any like mall brands, but I work with, with brands that oftentimes they'll have like a wholesale and, a D2C component of their business. That's that's really common for the brands that I'm working with, or they're looking at introducing direct to consumer as an additional channel in addition to their B2B and wholesale uh, sales that they do today. And so that's why people say often say to me, well, B2B and D2C, direct to consumer are so different. How do you, like, why would you pick those two to work together? Well, actually B2B and D2C have a lot of correlation because so many B2B brands do want to establish a D2C channel. And so they are tightly aligned in many cases. There is an argument that, you know, all B2B is still just within the parameters of D2C because you, you, it's one business onto another business who in that context are customers anyway. So yes. that's, that's, that's semantical, but I see it's still, a, it's still an observation. So anyways, the reason why I wanted to qualify that is just because I'm still um, really interested in asking you this question just about the, 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 the retail experience, um, you know, with, your, with what your understanding of, uh, of Web3 and the metaverse. I mean, and what we've talked about so far in the retail space, now that there's a lot of momentum in the retail space is what are you seeing that you know, retail stores are going to be able to do to really make it worth their while to, to stay in business? And one thing that I want to add to this, just to you know, help um, with the understanding of it is there are a lot of things that, you know, you can just do to you can just buy a lot of things online. Um, the, today was the first time that I realized why my girlfriend and I like going to malls. It's like, a low risk amusement park. Like yes. you know, there's there's sights, there's scents, there's sensations, and you know once in a while you, there's there may be a ride, but not really. It's mostly just you know walking around and and and, and experiencing all of these things. There's kiosks, there's popcorn for God's sake. With the emergence of what is you know the metaverse, um, what are you seeing retail stores 
or just brands in general, even ones who have their own, you know, offsite, off-mall stores, like the ones that you just described, the, the furniture retailer, what are they doing to prep for being worth having, what are they doing to make it worth having physical space? Vast, vast majority are not. That's, that's the honest truth. And retail is pretty shitty the world over. Um, there's very few brands that create what I would call experiential retail. We've got a brand down here, a retail brand called Culture Kings that does it pretty well. They've got an in-store DJ. They have uh, influencers come in store for autograph signings. They have, you know, they have, uh, you know, food experiences. They have, you know, the, the, the retail or coming in and buying, say, the latest skate shirt. So they're a streetwear and, and skate uh, and culture, cultural, you know, cultural type clothing, fashion brand, right, retailer. Um, they don't make their own brand. So they sell, you know, like the Quicksilvers of the world and other streetwear brands, but they have done a pretty good job of trying to create massive draw cards to come to their store, whether or not you buy any piece of fashion in store, for example, you, 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 they, they're trying to create a hundred reasons to go into a culture King store, even if you never buy, or, or if you only ever buy clothes online from them or fashion online or shoes online with them, they're trying to create 101 reasons for you to come to their store anyway, just, mm -hmm. just to be. Uh, just to experience their brand. And I think that this is going to become the norm. I think that, you know, Amazon has just announced their new style store that they're going to be building in LA, which is going to be a completely experiential store where it's going to be completely integrated with their mobile app. You'll be able to request things in your size to be able to send, uh, be able to be sent by people in the store. You won't even see them. They'll grab your right size and they'll take it to your fitting room. Uh, they'll have integration with smart mirrors. They're going to have integration with beacons. They're going to, you know, th there's going to be some pretty cool stuff that they're going to be bringing because of their digital prowess and because of their go store technology. And they're going to be, they're basically going to be leaning into their strengths as a digital first business to bring all sorts of digital overlays or digital enhancements to the physical experience in the store. Now, we'll, and, and in terms of product recommendations and the whole nine yards, right? Now, will they be able to pull that off? Because it's it's probably easier for them to do that in a digital space than a physical space. Well, you know, they've 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 seemed to have been able to figure out just walk out technology, and that was bloody hard to crack. So, do I think that their Gen One product will be amazing and their Gen One physical experience of, of their department store? Do I think it'll be amazing? Probably not. But they'll learn fast, and they will improve fast as they do with everything else that they do. And I think they're going to set the standard pretty quickly of what a digitalized physical experience looks like. And I have lots of ideas where this could go. Mm -hmm. uh, I've thought about this for many, many years. And I've thought about all the friction that is introduced in the physical shopping experience. There's a thousand points of friction that currently lives in the physical space. And if we just removed half of them, the physical experience would be so much better. And so uh, I'm, I'm watching businesses like Amazon. Uh, there's a few that do it well. There's a, there's a furniture brand called Brosa today that have swing tags with QR codes on their products in store where you can just scan it, will automatically pull it up in the app and it will show you all the specs of the product, the information, it will show you stock availability by store. They, you know, and, and you can book uh, you know, a, a book time with a consultant. And there's, there's other things that you can do that help to bridge that physical to, to virtual experience where you can carry over what you've been looking at in store online and vice versa. Brands are starting to lean that direction, but many of them just, it's just not a priority yet. And they don't mm -hmm. know what's possible yet, or they don't even know what they want to build yet in terms of that experience. And so brands need to start thinking about that today, but there's there's what's called DXPs, digital experience platforms that can help. Um, there's one down here that's uh, an Australian technology platform called platform called Omnio, Omnio uh, and they're they're creating they're they're creating technology that automatically bridges the physical and, and virtual uh, to where both loyalty uh, as well as your purchase history and everything it's it's all synced automatically through the app that benefits the customer. Not it primarily benefits the customer experience, not necessarily the brand. And these types of technologies are going to make that a lot easier moving forward once they become standardized. You know, um, one one passing thought that uh, crossed my mind as well is, you know, not not to get too political, I'm getting a little political, but not too political, is a, a lot of the pressure that people put on uh, larger companies to you know, increase their, their taxes and to, you know, contribute more money back into, into the Fed. And yet, there's another form of pressure here, which is, you know, the, the bigger the company, the more pressure they have to adopt emerging technology, take the risk on it, potentially lose millions of uh, tens of millions of dollars on it. 
And if, they, and if they don't, they're either left in the dust or they're perceived as uh, archaic all of a sudden by not being on top of everything that, that's coming. So it, it, it is fascinating to see how technology actually puts pressure on larger companies to have to continue to reinvest their money back into the economy. Yes. Yeah, I, I, there's no question about that. I mean, you you look at what Nike's doing in the metaverse and or what they're planning to do, and they've got no choice. They have to protect their brand in these virtual spaces. They don't. They literally do not have a choice. Even if they hated the metaverse, which I suspect that they don't, uh, they they literally have to invest tens of millions, which will ultimately be hundreds of millions of dollars in the digital space. Because if they don't, then they they won't be protecting their brand in these emerging channels. And so they just they literally don't have a choice. If you're a smaller business that doesn't have a brand, obviously with the strength of a Nike, then maybe you can be a fast follower. You don't have to be a leader. You don't want to be a laggard either, but you don't have to be a, a leader, right? You, you can be a fast follower. You can watch what the biggest brands are doing. You can let them make a lot of the mistakes first. You can you can emulate what they're doing, but tweak it and modify it and and mold it to your business and your brand and your customer experience. But let them make the mistakes first and just mm-hmm. look at what they're doing and follow it very closely and say, we're going to be a fast follower. We're not going to be a leader. Yeah, because you just imagine not having for that brand to not have any of their own impact in the metaverse. There's no telling what experience somebody might have related to Nike. It's like, oh yeah, I just walked to this other store to pick up the Nike shoes and I got attacked by like eight Sasquatches because who knows what's going to happen in that first. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. Well, well Jason, uh, this has been just like a j- hour jam packed with uh, with interesting insights. I'm My my mind is just like uh, swimming around with, not, and, and I will say I'm a little more optimistic about where we're going with this um, than I was prior to the conversation. So for that, I thank you. Well, that makes me, that makes me feel pretty good then. It's, it's the truth. You know, it's, it, it's coming, it's coming one way or another, right? So let's, uh, like you said, let's look for how, you know, how to integrate this into our, into our lifestyle, into, into business and in a way that uh, actually teaches people the value of, of, of humanity and, and, and still, you know, connecting with one another until Neuralink takes off and then we can, you know, get, get our, our oxytocin hit from like miles away, but you know, that, yeah, that, exactly. that'll be a while. Exactly. Yeah, that'll be a while. All right, Jason. So uh, final question to wrap this up. A, if you have like uh, a Chinese proverb or a quote or a saying that's been sticking in your mind lately, feel free to share it and then let the audience know how they can make contact with you. Yeah, I think the one that, that, that I'm trying to live, uh, I, I've heard this saying before and I've tried to integrate it into my life, but I'm really, truly trying to integrate it into my life, particularly with lockdowns and the way our government's handling COVID and everything else. If you If you see the world as life happening for you instead of to you, that that one mindset change. So if if something happens, oh, this happened to me. No, it didn't. It happened for you. I just have to figure out. I just have to figure out how and why, right? So mm-hmm. that one mindset change alone. I forget where I heard that. I think it may have been Tony Robbins or something like that. But but uh, I, I think if we can change our mindset to instead of things happening to us, things are happening for us. We just have to figure out why or how, uh, and and figure out how to apply that learning in our life that will help us to become more positive just generally. And I think mindset and heart set are the two things we have control over. We have to guard we have to guard what we allow into our sphere, whether that be friendships, whether that be media, doesn't matter what we're talking about. We have to jealously guard what we allow into our heart space and our head space uh, because we, ha- we actually do have control over that. And, and that's the, that's, those are the things we actually have control over. We can't control what happens external to us, but we can handle. Uh, we can control what happens inside our our brain and our heart and our, our mindset. So I think that to me is a is a biggie. Um, sorry, what was the second question? Well, actually, I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, you you asked because I just wanted to echo your sentiment there. I I've had it in a in a similar way, uh, not not exactly the way your your saying puts it, but the way my mindset was is. If this experience that I'm having, this lived experience that I'm having, is something that I planned for myself, then everything that happens to me is, is an opportunity for me to say, "So why would I do that to myself? Why am I giving myself this challenge? Why did I make myself um, be frustrated by this, uh, enthused by that?" So you know, it, it manifests in different ways, but that's yeah, that's me uh, echoing your sentiment. The other side of it, the other question was I'd let the audience know how they can make contact and, and check out your podcast too, which I think I'm going to want to do as well, frankly. Thank you. Uh, best place to, to connect with me is probably LinkedIn. I put out more content there than anywhere and than any of my other channels. I do have my podcast as well, which is at the coalface. Uh, you can find it on literally any podcast engine. I've got my own premium newsletter called at the coalface digest. 
Uh, but I'm also on TikTok. I'm also on Instagram. I'm also, I'm pretty much uh, YouTube. I'm pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. But, but basically if you connect with me on LinkedIn and you listen to the podcast, you, you, and I, of course I've got greenwoodconsulting.net, but you know, your people probably won't necessarily be interested in engaging me with me, with me for consulting, but I, hopefully they would find something. Super it's actually, useful. yeah, it's possible. Yeah. It can go either way. Yeah. But, but hopefully they'd find something super useful out of my content. So basically LinkedIn and podcasts are probably the two quickest, easiest, fastest ways, uh, ways to find me. Okay. Excellent. Well, Jason, uh, one more thank you for the road. It's been, it's great to have you here. Definitely learned a lot uh, today and I'm, and I'm looking forward to what I'm going to learn uh, tomorrow and the day after that and so on and so forth. Well, thank you uh, so much for having me and the, the awesome questions. This has been probably one of the most interesting podcast podcasts that I've been on from a guest perspective and had some super intriguing questions that went pretty deep on stuff that I haven't really talked about before. So well done. That means a lot to me. It really does. You might find this interesting, but I don't, I have like 21 questions that I wrote down. I don't think I asked any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means it was, a good I was podcast. just like, I was just like taking notes and be like, I just like, I keep on track with this. Uh, actually it's funny too. Cause like my, my SEO team, uh, they they give they give me some questions now that they want me to ask because it's good for a, a SEO. Uh, what are the challenges in implementing omnichannel experiences and solutions? I don't you don't even have to answer them. I can just ask these, and it shows up on the SEO. Uh, what businesses should consider op- for opening a new marketing channel? How can businesses utilize structured data to improve customer experience? I I shouldn't mock them like this, but because I was paying attention to what we were saying, I was like, oh, you know what? We've been bringing up all of this stuff anyway, so they just like, oh, just just ask it naturally. Use your voice. I'm like, no, I'm giving you guys all the credit for this. Anyways, yeah, it's uh, I, your, your your feedback means a lot. To me and that's everything that i can uh, invoke from my brain so i'm gonna uh leave it there to my audience it is an honor and a privilege to collect this information use it for my own benefit you better believe i do and of course for for all of you as well so if you want to reach out you all know what to do podcast at dbdefy.com and with that take care we will check in soon thanks for listening you might have found this show on many number of platforms apple podcasts Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.